Good morning, everyone. Whoa, yeah, it's huge up here. Not me, but the sound. <clears throat> good to see y'all today on this beautiful Sunday. A good day for some good news, isn't it? Tell you what, I was followed a little bit of the political circus that was going on in Washington this week with the Comey testifying and everything, and I just thought, my gosh, how, how disappointing is our government? How disappointing are politicians? And just, it just highlighted the whole dysfunction of Washington, D.C. right now. And I don't care what side of the aisle you are on. They are both sides are just as incompetent and disappointing as can be. And as I was sitting there, starting to get all discouraged and everything, I thought, man, thank God that that's not where my hope is, you know? Thank God that my future and my, my joy does not hinge on what happens in Washington, D.C. And, uh, man, so uh, I could use some good news this week, and I'm sure you can too. And God has given us some in his word. Last Sunday I told you we were going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 for the next few Sundays. So if you have your Bibles, turn there once again. Last week we went through... Uh, verse 6, and so today we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 7. So if you're there, let's all stand together as we read the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, starting in verse 7, Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do welcome you here. And we ask you to just open our eyes to the truth that is contained here in, in this part of your uh, precious word that that you have given us, let us see the truth for what it really is and let it just latch on to us deep inside that we may be transformed by, from the inside out. Lord, I pray that we will leave here more in love and in awe of you than we are even in this moment right here. God, I thank you that our hope does lie in you and it's a strong, secure, and solid hope. And Lord, would you just show us how good it is today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the main beliefs that we hold to as Christians, which is one of those non-negotiables, is that God is one magnificent entity, yet made up of three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even though the Godhead consists of three distinct persons, we are not polytheists, meaning we believe in more, more than one God. We are monotheists. We believe in the one true God. But yet in our monotheism, the one God consists of three distinct persons. And if that hurts your brain just a little bit, that's a good thing because it, it should. Trying to understand or even explain the Trinity is an exercise in utter futility for mere humans. It is impossible with such finite minds that we possess to be able to grasp and comprehend something so infinite and so beyond anything that we can relate to or understand in this world. I mean, trying to figure out just how the Trinity works just 
overloads all of our mental circuits. There are many things about God that you and I are never going to understand this side of heaven. And so to not believe something about God just because you can't understand it, just because you can't figure it out, is pretty silly. And it's also pretty arrogant. Because if God were someone that we could fully understand everything about, I'm telling you right now, you and I would be in a lot of trouble. And God would, we wouldn't need him. He wouldn't be worthy of our worship if we could figure everything out about him. So the question then is, if there's something about God that we can't understand, that we can't fully wrap our minds around, how can we trust that it's true? And the simple answer to that is, if it's in God's word. If it's in the Bible, then it's true, whether or regardless of whether or not we can understand it and wrap our brains around it. There are many things about God and his nature and the way that he operates where that's the case. The doctrine of election that I talked about last week is a good example. I mean, we looked at verse 3 that clearly says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world and then follows that right up with and predestined us to adoption. We may not understand it. We may not even like it. But we can't escape the fact that it is right there in his word, and we find it there over and over again in many places. But the doctrine of the Trinity, to me, has got to be one of the most confounding things there is about God. There is no way that I'm going to be able to stand up here and flesh that out in a way to where we'd all of a sudden go, Oh, I get it now. I understand that. No, you won't. Because I can't explain it to where you can do that. But we trust it even though we don't understand it. And we trust it even though we won't ever find the word Trinity anywhere in Scripture. That's just a word that we've come up with to describe this amazing aspect of God. What we do find in the Bible is lots of evidence of this three-in-one dynamic at work. And the first chapter of Ephesians is one of those places. Tim Keller refers to how the Trinity operates as the divine dance. And I like that description. And he, he gets that from a term that was used in the early Greek church called perichoresis. It's is where we get our word choreography from. And he describes the action within the Godhead as this, this sort of dance that the three are doing together. It's a dance of mutual glorification where each one submits to and glorifies the other. And to glorify in this case is not just, just to praise and enjoy, but to defer to and serve. The joy of each one is to see joy in the one that is being glorified. This is how we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interacting with one another all throughout Scripture. And Paul is essentially describing this dance in Ephesians 1 as it applies to our salvation. Salvation involves all three of them working together, deferring to one another in order to fulfill God's purpose in us. Last week we learned that The role of the Father in this in Ephesians 1 is that the Father chooses. 
Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us. And then starting here in verse 7, Paul moves from the work of the Father to the work of the Son. And after that, he's going to talk about what the Holy Spirit does, which we're going to look at uh, closer next week. And what we see in all this is the decisive action that each person of the Godhead takes in our salvation. And the decisive action of each one is this, and it's the first thing there in your notes if you're following along in the bulletin. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Spirit seals. And so what this also tells us is something that I keep on telling you is that salvation is all God's doing, not ours. The thing is, it has to be all his doing. Salvation has to be all of his work because in our fallen, depraved state, we are completely incapable of doing anything as far as leading ourselves to salvation or understanding anything about God and his truth. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man, talking about uh, a person void of the Spirit of God, uh, not saved, a natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. What that means is that no one can see, understand, believe any part, any truth of the gospel unless God is the one to open their eyes. The Holy Spirit has to be the one to bring that understanding to someone because the Bible says that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Not spiritually asleep, but spiritually dead. Something dead cannot make a decision between two options. It cannot do anything for itself but lay there and rot. Colossians 2.13 and Ephesians 2.5 both says, When you were dead in your sin, he made you alive. He did it, not you. The doctrine of election the fact that God chooses us for salvation begins to make a whole lot more sense only when you realize how utterly helpless and incapable we really are in that depraved state apart from Christ. Only then can you begin to see it for the grace that it really is. And so if he didn't choose us, we'd all be in hell where we deserve to be. The work God does in our salvation is a beautiful thing involving involving all three aspects of his being. Each, Each one takes a decisive step in this divine step. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Spirit seals, and we are caught up in this dance that completely transforms us and causes worship to well up within us and putting that to God, and it all springs up from a heart full of joy. Today we look at the son's part in this dance. Let's look at verse 7 closer, and we're going to break this down into each phrase. And the first phrase is that in him we have redemption 
through his blood. The definition for the Greek word that Paul used there for redemption is the next thing in your notes. It means a releasing caused by payment of a ransom. A releasing caused by payment of a ransom. And so the idea that Paul is conveying here is that we were held captive and then ransomed. A payment was made to rescue us from captivity. You know, some of the most successful movies have been those that that tell this very story about someone being rescued after being held for ransom. There's the movie called Ransom. The title of it is Ransom, starring Mel Gibson that came out in 1996. And there's a famous scene in that movie where Mel's talking on the phone with the guy who kidnapped his little boy, Gary Sinise, and he's demanding $2 million in order to let the boy go. And Mel tells him that he will not pay the $2 million, but instead he's going to hunt him down and kill him and then get his boy back. And on the phone, they just begin yelling in this shouting match back and forth at one another. And then at the end of it, Mel, just in this rage that has just been building up within him, yells through the phone, give me back my son. Another famous movie is the one called Taken, starring Liam Neeson, whose daughter is kidnapped. And he also has a conversation with the kidnappers over the phone. But his demeanor is quite a contrast to the one that Mel Gibson had in Ransom. Uh, Liam Neeson's character is just calm, cool, and collected. And he talks on the phone and he says... You want a ransom to be paid, but I don't have any money. And then he calmly says the most famous line in the movie when he says, What I do have are a particular set of skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. And then he calmly says, If you don't let my daughter go, I will hunt you down, I will find you, and I will kill you. He was so confident in what he was able to do. And then finally, the movie Man on Fire, starring Denzel Washington. This story more closely mirrors the actual story of the gospel than the other two. Denzel's character is hired by a wealthy couple in Mexico to protect their little girl, but she is kidnapped and held for ransom. And Denzel's character hunts down everyone involved in her kidnapping. And then in the end, he gives himself up to the kidnappers in order for the little girl to be released. I'm sure many of you have probably seen at least one, if not all, of these movies. If you haven't, I'm not encouraging you to go see these movies. They're all rated R and not wholesome family movies to see. But there's a reason why those movies are so popular. And it goes beyond the fact that they each had a big-name actor starring in the main role. And it's not just that they were entertaining. It's that they tell a story a particular story that resonates deep down within every one of us. It's, it's, it's that they tell a story, the story that you and I were created to be a part of, the story that you and I were chosen to be a part of because they all mimic in some way or ultimately actually come from the original ransom story of the gospel. 
I mean, we just love the way that those fathers went to great lengths to rescue their children, and they did whatever it was going to take in order to get them out of their captivity. For those of us who have children of our own, we can just feel the the anger and the rage and the, the wrath that they express towards those kidnappers. It's the anger and the wrath that our Heavenly Father had when we were held captive by sin and death. He went to great lengths and did everything that he could to release us from captivity. And not only did he give himself up for our ransom, but at the very same time, he utterly defeated our kidnapper. Ephesians 2.8 says, The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 55, says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The thing about you being held captive by sin is that you foolishly actually think that you are free. You think you're free to live however you want to, free to do whatever feels good, free to Be your own person. Be your own boss. But that's a false sense of freedom that actually holds you in even more bondage. You are held captive to a lie that says you are free. Held captive to this false sense of freedom. But Jesus said in John 8, 36, If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Meaning you are really free. True freedom is only found in Jesus. And then the next phrase in verse 7, not only do we have redemption, but we have the forgiveness of our trespasses or the forgiveness of our sins. And I want you to notice the correlation between these two things here. Paul is saying that if you have redemption, if you have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus, then you also have forgiveness. Next point in your notes. Once you are in Christ, forgiveness is something that you never have to hope to get ever again. You never have to hope to get it ever again. Why? Because you have it. It's in your account. Never again do you have to do something in order to earn it. You don't even have to beg for it. I mean, it has already been done for you. The sins that you committed before you were saved, forgiven. The sins that you committed after you were saved and will continue to commit from now on, forgiven already. Now, some have asked me, and you might be wondering the same thing, am I saying then that we don't have to ask for forgiveness from God when we do sin? Well, technically, not in order to be forgiven, you don't, because you already have it. But here's the deal. You are not in a contract, but a relationship. And what I mean by that is this. If all we had with God was a contract, then we could go, the contract has been signed by the blood of Jesus. It's a done deal. I have all the forgiveness I'm ever going to get, and so I never have to ask for it again because the contract has been ratified. But what God has brought you into is not a contract but a relationship. And here's what I mean by that in the context of forgiveness. There are times where I will hurt my wife. I'll do things that make her mad. I will say things I shouldn't say. I will do things that I 
shouldn't do. I will at times sin against her. But I know for a fact that because of her love for me and because of the Spirit of God that lives in her, that I have her forgiveness already. I know that she is mature enough to know that if she doesn't forgive me, it's going to be more damaging to her than it is to me. And the same thing, I mean, it goes both ways. If she does something against me, she has my forgiveness already. I've got the spirit of Jesus Christ living in me. I have his forgiveness in me, so I have no choice but to forgive her. We know this about one another. And so technically, I don't have to ask for her to forgive me in order for her to do so. But in order to maintain a healthy relationship, I'm going to go to her and I'm going to confess and acknowledge what I've done and ask for her forgiveness because it's a way to humble myself to her and to own up to my sin and express my love. Technically, I don't have to do that. But I know that doing that, it just reinforces that relationship that we have with one another and the relationship that we have with God. And the same thing is true with my relationship with him. When I know that I have sinned against him, I'm going to go to him, not run from him and hide, but because I understand his grace, I'm going to go to him. I'm going to acknowledge what I've done and ask for the forgiveness that I know is already mine. And then I'm going to thank him over and over again for it. I don't believe for a second that asking God to forgive me diminishes the fact that he has already purchased it because I'm not asking it because I don't think I don't because I think I don't have it. I mean, I'm not asking hoping that he will give it to me but not really sure. I'm just reinforcing the fact that I have a relationship with him because of the forgiveness that I already have. Does that make sense? All right. Some of you it does. It's okay. (laughs) But I'll tell you, there is a way that we do diminish the finished work of the cross. And that's the next thing in your notes. We diminish what Jesus has done when we think our sin is too big for his forgiveness or that we've got to do something in order to earn his forgiveness that we've got to do something in order to get it Paul says we have redemption we have forgiveness now the last line of verse 7 actually ends up being the first line in verse 8 as well. And I just love this. We have redemption and we have forgiveness according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. The word Paul used for lavish there in the Greek is the word parasuo, which means to exceed a fixed number of measure, to be left over and above a certain number or measure. It's the same word used in Matthew 5.20. When Jesus fed the 5,000 people with nothing but five loaves of bread and two fish. And then there at the end of verse 20, it says, And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. It means that the grace that we have in Christ isn't just enough, it's more than enough. It means it isn't just what we need, it's more 
than you need. I said last week that in him we have an inexhaustible resource of grace in Jesus, which means that it will never, ever run out. He doesn't just give us some grace. He absolutely lavishes us with it. Just like that line in the song, How He Loves, that says, If His grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. One of the best examples of this grace found in the Bible is Jesus' first conversation with Peter. The first conversation he had with him since Peter denied knowing him three times. And I want to show you a video that illustrates this in a powerful way. Some of you have probably seen it done by the skip guys, but um, just watch this and let it speak to you. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. Jesus, is that you? You're alive. I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net and I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord, and you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. This is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter, yeah. do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good, then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? I love you, yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster clucking. I had no idea what that meant, but I do not. I'm better for it, all right? Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, Yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And she said that there was an angel there. And the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there. And if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is. It is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait, yeah. the angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said okay. what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. 
Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. Grace is never about you and what you've done. It is always about him and what he has done. I mean, how else could God look at a man who slept with a married woman and then finding out that she was pregnant, had her husband murdered, and look at that man and call him a man after his own heart? It's because of his grace. How could Jesus cover the shame of a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, turn around and expose the guilt of her accusers, and then look at her and say that he doesn't condemn her because of his grace? How could he approach a man who for a living collected money from people through extortion that financed the occupation, rape, and murder of his own people. And Jesus walk up to him and say, I want to have supper with you. It's because of his grace. The story of David, the story of the adulterous woman, the story of Zacchaeus, the story of Peter is your story too. The lavishing of grace on those who didn't deserve it. And you know what? It seems to be those who deserve it the least that he seems to lavish it on the most. And he does that because it just glorifies his grace all the more. Nothing is too big for his grace. And then finally, verse 9. I don't know why it's broken up this way, but the sentence actually starts in verse 8. And it says, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. All right. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, no one has really known what God was up to. Before the fall, Adam and Eve lived in a constant revelation of truth. They knew the heart and the mind of God because they were so close to him and full of his spirit. They could see things the way that God saw them, but their sin took all that away from them. And from then on, mankind was left to speculate, just guess at best as to what God was doing, what God wanted, what he was going to do. All they knew is that something was broken and needed to be fixed. 
The Old Testament is full of their failed attempts, one after another, at trying to do that through any means that they thought might work. They didn't know at that time that it was God's will to restore all of creation back to its original design. But in order to do that, he first had to redeem it. He first had to ransom it because all of creation was held captive by the effects of sin. And so Jesus came to do just that. He offered himself as that ransom and everything changed. He restored what sin took. And what had been hidden from everyone since Adam has now been revealed to you and me through Jesus. We no longer have to speculate and guess as to what God wants, what he is doing, or what he is going to do. We have been given the revelation of truth that Adam and Eve lost way back in the garden. Folks, I'm telling you right now, nothing in this world, nothing about life, nothing about God will make any sense at all apart from Jesus. Without him, the best we can do is just speculate. But in him, we have that revelation of truth. Last point. For those who are in Christ, God has replaced speculation with revelation. C.S. Lewis put it best when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. As we learned last week, these are just more reasons why we should want to bless God and glorify his name. He has redeemed us. We are forgiven. He has lavished us with more grace than we ever intended to get. And he has opened our eyes to the revelation of truth. What a gift. Let's pray. Lord, it is amazing to think that not only have you done what we needed, not only have you given us what we needed in order to be made right, in order to be saved, in order to be brought into relationship with you, you haven't done just what was needed. You have given us more than that more than we need, more than we deserve, more than we could ever use in this life. I thank you that you have given us eternity to experience it, discover more about it each and every day. Lord, I pray for those that came in here this morning who still feel like that they are held captive by something. Maybe it's a sin that just seems to have its claws dug into them. Or maybe it's their own arrogance. Their own foolishness, thinking that they are free apart from you. That they are free out from under any authority that you have established. Lord, today, may their eyes be open to the captivity that they are really in. And realize that a ransom has been paid for their release. Lord, would you bring them to that releasing this morning? 
Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that today will be the start of a new life in you. God, for those who have been struggling with just being able to receive your grace, God, I pray that it happens today. Lord, they've done enough believing in it for others. Lord, today it's time for them to believe it for themselves. Nothing is too big for your grace. The more that we seem to not deserve it, the more you just lavish it on. Lord, I thank you that it's your grace, it's your kindness that changes us and brings us to that place of repentance where we turn from our sin and turn to you in your loving arms of a good, good Father. So Holy Spirit, would you come and do what you intended to do today with everyone that you specifically brought here in this place this morning. And God, we will give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.